from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. This is part of our Everything You Need to Know About Pastoring series, with today's focus on cross-cultural churches. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Randy Neighbors, Coordinator of Urban and Mercy Ministries for Mission to North America. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, President of the NAE, here with Randy Neighbors. Randy is Pastor Emeritus of New City Fellowship in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he was the lead pastor for 35 years. While in New City, he also served as an Army Reserve Chaplain and was mobilized three times for Desert Storm and for Operation Iraqi Freedom. Randy is the author of a book titled Merciful, Opportunity and Challenge of Disciple the Poor Out of Poverty. He currently serves as the coordinator for Urban and Mercy Ministries for Missions in North America, which is the church planting arm of the Presbyterian Church in America denomination, PCA. And he is also the coordinator of the New City Network. Randy has a Master of Divinity degree from Covenant Seminary in St. Louis and has also done grad work in urban sociology and urban ministry at Georgia State University and Westminster Theological Seminary. A lot of qualifications. Thank you today, Randy, for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be here. So first of all, let's uh, hear a little bit about your work with uh, PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Well, the PCA has uh, several mission organizations, uh, one overseas and one for here in North America. And the one in North America is primarily focused on planting churches. And uh, my focus is to try to help plant those churches in communities of the poor and also to train any of our churches uh, in mercy ministries, how to train their deacons especially uh, to focus on it. And um, so that's primarily my work uh, for the denomination. And then I also coordinate a thing called the New City Network. All right. Well, tell us more. Tell us about the New City Network. Well, the name of the church I pastored uh, for so long here in Chattanooga is New City Fellowship. And that sort of became the model or the mother church uh, of churches that wanted to be urban, cross-cultural. Uh, to include poor people in their church and ministry, uh, to have joyful worship and sound biblical teaching, those five things. And uh, so we're now in about 80-something cities, and we include uh, churches as well as nonprofit uh, uh, economic development ministries and and various individuals who want to be associated with us. So part of your personal biography is in... Newark, New Jersey. That is a part of my biography as well. And I'm interested in your experience in, in growing up in the projects of, of Newark, but especially how that has influenced your ministry path. Well, you know, I give God praise because I had some wonderful mentors and examples. Um, basically, my my family um uh, it was a broken family. My uh, father was from Memphis. My mother was from New Jersey. And uh, we were, I was born in Memphis. And then they broke up. And my father put my mom and us kids on the train. And he sent us up to my grandparents in New Jersey and Newark. And uh, so 
after uh, a little time, my mother's life really fell apart uh, spiritually and emotionally and financially. And she became pregnant uh, by a man who's not married to. And my grandparents were very moral people. She gave that child up for adoption, turned around and got pregnant again. And by this time, we had moved into the city housing projects of Newark. We were on welfare. And it was really, I think, the second pregnancy was the lowest point in my mother's life. And just at that time, uh, another single parent mom reached out to her, invited her to some house church meetings. And there was a little church in Newark called Calvary Gospel Church. Pastor was Grover Wilcox. And um, the next day, the evangelist and the pastor came to our house in the projects and basically led our family to Christ. And that began uh, really a lifetime of discipleship from that church to us, um, ministering to us in all kinds of uh, physical and spiritual ways. I mean, I can remember my mom weeping when there was no food and a knock came at the door and there were the deacons of the church uh, with bags of groceries. Um, and that kind of just love uh, gripped our family. And my pastor was a great mentor of young people. We had a tremendous inner city youth group called the Conquerors Club when I was in high school. This is in the 60s. And Newark was being really ripped apart uh, racially. There was a lot of tension, the riot of 67. But in the midst of all of that, this church was just had us out on the street all the time, evangelizing, witnessing. So I felt uh, called. Uh, my pastor encouraged me to consider whether I was called uh, to the ministry. And I felt called at about age 15 and uh, set my heart uh, to be prepared and trained. Um, and so, you know, that's the context uh, from which I come. I grew up in the projects. And uh, I met a girl there. Uh, she came out to our church youth group. She lived in the building next to mine. And as soon as she came out that night, I knew I would marry her. I was 15. And uh, I didn't tell her that. at the <laughs> But thank God the Lord let that happen. My wife, Joan, and I grew up same block, same grammar school, same high school, got saved through the same church. And we've been married 48 years now. Your journey took you from... New Jersey to Chattanooga, Tennessee. That is um, an interesting distance and, and change in context. And there you help plant New City Fellowship, which is a cross-cultural church. And we're back to the 1970s there. I, I want to hear, and we all want to hear, um, some about the church and, and especially how did it become cross-cultural? Well, um, by the way, a book has just uh, come out, written by Mark Bells, that tells the history of the church. It's called Every Precious Stone. And unbeknownst to me, uh, there was stuff going on in a denomination called the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelicals in the 60s. And they were having a big denominational discussion about race. And one of the big issues that came up was interracial marriage. And uh, the story is the pastors went to that meeting to vote against it. But as they heard the arguments from scripture, they decided there was nothing scripturally against it, except for a Christian not to marry a non-Christian. And on the way home from that meeting, one of the elders, uh, the story was in the car back to Tennessee. He looked at the people in the car and he said, this means some things need to change. and that 
started to germ uh, in a man. His name was Rudy Schmidt. He's really the founding elder of our church. And it, it sort of became an engine in him that we, we really need this all white denomination. We need to cross some bridges and we need to uh, reach out to the black community. And they didn't know really how to do that. They were pretty ignorant of the traditional black church. They had really no friends in the black community. Uh, so their idea was just simply to start a Sunday school in the inner city. They went to one of the poorest sections of town, knocked on doors, rented a, a, a little slum apartment, and began to have Sunday school. Now, I had come from this incredibly evangelistic inner city church in Newark. Um, my youth group was 90% African-American. The girlfriend I had was African-American, and uh, she was the first African-American female to go to Covenant College. And a lot of these folks who were starting this school were faculty and staff and students from the college. I went out to Biola my freshman year of college and in God's mercy, a man uh, said he would pay my way to school anywhere I wanted to go. And uh, so I went to California my freshman year, but then I transferred to Covenant. And uh, my girlfriend at that time, now my wife, she said, well, you need to come with me to church. And I said, yes, ma'am. And uh, next thing I know, I was heavily involved. And I began to preach in that ministry uh, when I was a junior in college. So it was always uh, focused on the black community, always uh, had a ministry to the poor, uh, but with a lot of white people involved. And it took us a while to kind of figure out that's exactly what God was calling us to be. Um, so from that very beginning until this day, that is what that church is about. Let's expand on that a little bit. The, the story you've told is just it's wonderful. It's, it's fascinating. I, I almost want to ask you every little detail in between, but let's, let's switch to theology for a moment. And the question is, um, how did cross-cultural churches, like you described with New City Fellowship, What's the theological aspect of that demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ? Oh, it's a great question. And I would say it's not only theology, but it's strategy. And I think uh, that is combined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. And that's where the Apostle Paul talks about the spiritual dynamic and the missiological strategy of what it means to cross cultures. And he starts off with his own identity saying, I'm, fr I'm a free man. And uh, he knew who he was in Christ, but he said, I make myself a slave uh, to others in order that I might by all means win some. So he goes through that list. You know, he talks about becoming a Jew to the Jews and uh, without the law to those without the law to like one under the law to those under the law to the weak, the weak he became as one who is weak. He says, I've become all things to all men in order that I'm by all means win some. And the, the theological spiritual dynamic is, is exactly the same. When Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, uh, you have to deny yourself. Uh, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And, there is nowhere more painful in the losing of self, I think, than when you realize you have to die, you have to become a slave to somebody else's culture. 
But boy, that translates as love to other people. And that basically is uh, the strategy we've pursued. It, it, cross-cultural churches to survive and to exist are not um, a cultural, culturally dominant church, say an all-white church that says to black folk, well, you're welcome to come, but you can't really be black here. You have to become white in culture. That, that is not dying. <laughs> and what happens is the majority church winds up saying to a minority person, deny all that you are in order for, to make us happy with your presence here. And that is a constant friction when that happens and it, it's not effective. And so we've kind of turned that whole strategy on its head. Missionaries understand that. When you go to a foreign country, you learn their language, you learn their culture. But it's really hard for a dominant culture here in our country to say, we are going to become slaves to a minority culture in order to love them and to welcome them. And that's what, by God's grace, we're trying to do. All right, so let's be sure we're clear on some terms here. There are some people who use words like multi-ethnic, others say cross-cultural, some say cross-racial, and you know, a whole bunch of other categories or terms when talking about churches. Are all these terms interchangeable? Do they mean the same thing? No, and that, that's a great question, and it really helps to define terms. Uh, you can be a multi-ethnic church and be monocultural which means basically uh, you are following the culture of the, of the majority and you might have a lot of different colors there. You might have a lot of different ethnicities, but basically all of them assimilate, all of them conform to the cultural model. Um, we can have that problem sometimes with missionaries. They go overseas and they create a cultural model from home and they're asking the indigenous people to basically become like Americans. And that, that's problematic. And so and there's nothing wrong with a multi-ethnic church, but it is not the same as being cross-cultural. And some people even use the phrase multicultural. And, you know, I don't know if you remember uh, Circle Church in Chicago many years ago, David Maines and Clarence Hilliard. Uh, they wrote a book uh, called Full Circle. And I... I remember being in a small group with those brothers and, and I love them. They're doing, trying to do a great thing, but basically their model was almost like a cultural uh, buffet, a cultural smorgasbord. You, you were white one Sunday and black another Sunday and Asian a third Sunday. And all it did, uh, in my opinion, uh, was kind of be irritating in, in emphasizing the differences. And eventually uh, it, it, it fell apart. But our model is not that. We are not trying to be multicultural. We are very distinctly trying to serve another culture, the majority to the minority. All right, so what term... Is that helpful? It is helpful, but I want to fully understand. So the term you would most use is the cross-cultural term, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, I mean, so that's that what we want to be. But doing that has got to be more difficult. It's got to be much more difficult to be cross-cultural than uh, cross-racial or multi-ethnic because culture runs so deep and can be so idiosyncratic. Well, you got that right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, culture is the water we all swim in. 
It's the air we breathe and we don't even know we're doing it. It's just, we've, we eat it up from our parents, uh, from our early uh, church experiences, uh, from our neighborhoods, from our ethnic communities. Uh, we, we learn all kinds of things uh, about culture. When I, when I took some urban sociology, I learned, you know, that there, there's a social order, even in how, like, we walk on a sidewalk. How come you can be in New York City and you walk down the street and you don't bump into people, but you learn how to sort of turn sideways? Because to Americans, bumping into people or touching strangers is not a good thing. You know, uh, when you sit on a bench, if there's somebody sitting in the middle of that bench, most other people will stand up while they're waiting for a bus. But if a person sits on the end of the bench, it's okay for you to sit on the other end. And those things are like little cultural rules that we live by. And when you, when you start dealing with crossing cultures, you have to think about culture all the time. You have to ethnicity and you have to think about history. Um, you have to think about uh, oppression. You have to think, th the reality is this, I'm a white guy. And almost any African-American I meet simply meets me on that basis. They see me as a white person and they may have all kinds of assumptions about what a white man like me thinks and what he does. And it's only as we pursue relationships uh, that they find out, hopefully, uh, that I'm not maybe as bad as they might assume for me to be. Um, but yeah, culture is incredibly powerful. Music is powerful in worship. And uh, that, that's always one of the great conflicts, of course, in worship, we'll get into these worship wars. But when you plant a church with culture in mind, you, you are no longer willing to insist that the way you sing a song is the right way to sing it. You actually want to sing it so the people you're trying to reach enjoy it. And it, it makes all the difference in the world. Right, you're already touching on this, but I'm trying to move from the sociology, and I have a degree in sociology, to the church. So what are some of the main challenges of doing this for you and for other church leaders who are seeking to create this place where people of uh, different cultures can all feel welcome? What, what are the specific challenges that need to be considered and need to be addressed? Well. You know, again, uh, understanding the realities of how uh, much offense there has been. It, this is not just this. Uh, we're not talking about culture in the abstract where uh, everybody's had great relationships in the past. And, you know, I respect black people. Black people respect white people. And, you know, we've had a lot of history. It's called slavery. It's called racism. It's called Jim Crow. Uh, it's called white supremacy. Uh, you know, all of these words, they're there. All that baggage is there. There's fear. There's distrust. And uh, I know that as a pastor, when somebody walks in the door and they look all the way down the middle aisle and they look up to the platform and they see me, a white man, there are certain things that happen. One is they say, okay, this is a white church. And so even the, the mixture of, of uh, ethnicities on that platform is a statement about what our church intends to do. 
you know, John Perkins uses the phrase intentionality a lot, and it is a really good phrase. Uh, people have to get all kinds of signals from us about what our intentions are. So who's doing uh, the leading of worship? Who's singing? What is the style of music? Uh, who is the preacher and what does he preach like and what are his commitments? And um, is he trying to raise up black leadership? Uh, it, you know, what are those things? Some of those they don't find out because as soon as they see me, they walk out the door. <laughs> and so part of being a cross-cultural church is not just Sunday morning. It's also being out in the community uh, doing uh, ministries of evangelism and mercy, relationship building, building trust. But it's also how you shape the worship service. All of those things send a message about what is our intention. So my question is, how did you actually deal with this? And it seems to me that decisions have got to be made. I, a conversation that I've had with an African-American pastor who's a friend, we talked about the difference in parking. So as a longtime pastor of a majority white church, I never once over decades parked on church property on a Sunday morning. I always parked across the street at the bank and walked across the street. In context, there's a reserved place by the front door in his African-American church. And we concluded that one isn't right or wrong, but they are very culturally distinct. So you had to make decisions on where to park and compensation and titles and how you address people. How, how did you deal with that? Uh, well, one of the things um, is I joined a group called the Black Ministers Union here in Chattanooga. It eventually changed its name, maybe because I joined it uh, to the uh, clergy koinonia, but uh, it was basically a group of pastors, uh, all African-American, they were Baptists, they were Church of God in Christ, they were AME, AME Zion, and we met every week. And those brothers really schooled me about the black church. And one reason I joined it was I did not want the African-Americans in my congregation to be cut off from the rest of the black community. And there is that reality in cross-cultural churches. Sometimes uh, other black folks judge harshly those black folks who would join in worship or in church with white people, just like some white people judge white people harshly who associate with black people. Uh, but I learned a lot about how the black church shows respect. You know, white people in general, we are kind of, uh, uh, we, we like to not put on a front out. We don't like to brag. We, we want to, uh, we, we hide our pride through kind of uh, a self-negation. Black church is not like that. Uh, if you get up to sing a solo in the black church and you improvise like almost like a jazz artist, the church goes crazy. They love it. But if you do that in a white church, people say, oh, he's showing off. Oh, he's, he's performing. Oh, it's entertainment. And they harshly judge uh, motives uh, based on that kind of stuff, even to the degree of respect for pastors. Uh, you know, if I, as a pastor, walk into uh, a white church and the pastor knows me, and a lot of the people know me, nobody will even admit that I'm there. I might sit in the back 
very occasionally somebody might say, oh, it's great to have pastor neighbors here this morning. But unless I'm the speaker, nobody is going to show me any attention. I can walk into an African-American church almost on any given Sunday, and the ushers will immediately ask me, are you a pastor? And especially if I'm in a suit. And if I say yes, the next thing I know, I'm on the platform, and I'm being asked to say something. This has happened to me innumerable times. Uh, And if I go to a funeral, I might wind up preaching half the sermon. Uh, But it is an incredible amount of respect for the clergy in the black community. And, you know, and, and I will tell you, for years, I can walk into grocery stores on the sidewalk and people will pass me by and go, hi, pastor, because they remember me from, and they've identified me in that role. Um, so it's cultural learning. And if, I will tell you, if you're a young pastor and you wanted to do this kind of thing, I would say you need to go find a mentor in the black community to teach you how uh, to be a pastor in the black community. Can anybody do this, or is there a certain set of characteristics, a profile? And I think the the hidden question there is there are pastors who may want to be cross-cultural, and they really shouldn't because they're not going to pull it off. Is that true, or can anybody do that? <laughs> you know, this is a, a, for me, this is kind of a complex question because uh, I've had to think about it. In the early days, people would say to me, Uh, Randy, you're unique. You have a unique background and only you could do this. And I began to realize how horrible an idea that was. If you say that you cannot build a cross-cultural church unless you have some incredibly unique background to prepare you. Now, and I'm thankful for all that God did to prepare me. Uh, But it's sort of like making this rocket science. And it's not. It's really a matter of obedience. Now, I, I will say this. There are people who have tried to start cross-cultural churches uh, with, I think, uh, naivete and with um, kind of a sense of confidence that it's not hard. They could do this. And I see some young men doing it. They've never called me. They've never asked me for any advice. They just start it. And uh, often I see them get into trouble. And there are a lot of questions that could have been asked if they had just gotten a mentor, if they have gotten training, if they were humble enough uh, to learn. Because there are skills, uh, just like being a good missionary, there are cross-cultural skills. And you can learn them and you can grow in them. And just like you need to grow as any, any ministry, I think you need to serve under older people. You need to learn from them. Um, but I, I do see a little too much uh, hubris sometimes from people. They might hear John Perkins speak. Or they might read a good book. They might feel convicted. They go out and try to do it, but they, they really don't listen and they don't ask good questions. But no, I don't think you need to be exceptionally unique. I do think you need to be exceptionally humble. Uh, and I think you need to learn how to trust God in this. There's much more diversity in America now than there has ever been. Still significant segregation and different people living in different states, but also in different parts of, of cities and all that, but, but far more diversity than there has been in the past. So maybe there's greater opportunity. And the question is, should, should every church 
seek to be multi-ethnic or cross-cultural? Well, you know, if you're in uh, Montana somewhere uh, or Nebraska or some state where, the, you know, if you are in an all something neighborhood and uh, it is completely homogeneous, then I, I don't see any mandate that you have to become something different than you are. I mean, I, I do think African-American churches are legitimate churches. I think white churches are legitimate churches. But I do think that if you are in a mixed neighborhood and you step over certain pockets of demographics in that neighborhood to only reach the kind of people you want in your church, I don't think you're being obedient to the Great Commission. And, and I think there might be some incipient racism at work there uh, or cultural bias. Uh, I get really upset. Uh, sort of, with, um, you know, in this day of gentrification, you have uh, sort of a lot of uh, millennial churches, hipster churches coming in neighborhoods, and and almost every denomination and church planning organization, they look at zip codes to see where the gentrification is happening, where the people movement is happening, and they want to plant a church there, and they do, and they target people like themselves. And they step over sometimes the people who've been living there for decades, and they don't reach out to them. I, I have a real problem with that. Um, I think that if the people are there, that's where God has called you, you need to share Jesus with them. And if, especially if they're the majority in that neighborhood, then you really need to work at changing uh, the culture. Um, and again, culture is something you can learn. I've had pastors tell me, well, that wouldn't be genuine to me. I, this is my culture. I would feel like a phony uh, to do this. Well, then maybe you shouldn't be there. You know, but one man said that to me, and he, he was actually planting a church in a black community, a white guy, and he had a core of white folks, and they were doing all this evangelism. And he said, and I asked him about his worship, and he said, no, it wouldn't be genuine for us to change it even though he wanted all these people to come in. And so I asked him this question. I said, have you ever, do you love your wife? And he said, yeah. And I said, have you ever made any changes to please her? And he said, yeah. And then the light went on. So I guess that's the answer, uh, my answer right. to is your it, question. Is it fair to say then that the church should reflect the context, the cultural context? Yes. So, of course, that implies you got to figure out what the cultural context is, and then, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but then make the changes, the sacrifices, the enslavement, if necessary, in order to uh, minister within within that context. All of this, right? And sometimes you can't do it by yourself. You need to build a team, you know. So, I mean, I would strongly urge any uh, one doing cross cultural church, whether you're white or black, if you're mixing people, you need somebody from that other ethnic group on your staff that you have great chemistry with and that you can be honest with. And uh, you do not want somebody else on there where there's some kind of cultural or ego competition. That'll blow up in your face. But if, if you have a great spiritual unity, uh, that can be wonderful. Yeah, most church planting strategists would say a team is so much better than uh, the Lone Ranger 
and precedent alone. Absolutely. That's also saying that the team has to reflect the diversity from the beginning, and that's going to make it a whole lot easier and more likely to try to add that. I agree. Later. Yes. yes. Okay, so it, it seems kind of obvious that this is, if done right, it's got to be easier with church planning than it does with changing existing, especially majority churches, majority culture churches. So what, what are the chances here that a majority culture church can change to minister to context more effectively if the church is 10 or 20 or 200 years old? What, what, what do they do? Yeah, great question. And I would say that there are different uh, periods of time in the life of those churches. In other words, you may have a church that's very healthy, very strong, majority culture or one culture. And yet they become surrounded uh, by the community of a different ethnicity. And there are also some of those churches that are dying. And this is unfortunately a frequent story in America where you have uh, urban churches. They've got 12 people left. They've got eight people left, 20 people left. And um, they're holding on to that property. They don't know what to do. Um, and for those people, I wish with all my heart they had a kingdom vision and not you know, just a survival vision where they could invite uh, other younger people of another ethnicity to come in and say, help us reach this community and even minister to us as we die. You know, do our funerals, love on us and instead of just packing up and going away. But if you have a very strong, healthy church and the, the leadership says, we are not reaching this community and we really need to do something. Yes, the, as soon as that is said, the challenge is immense and very difficult. It's not impossible, uh, but it's going to be hard. And it probably would not take place without you losing some people because there's some people who just, they're in your church because they like the way it is. And this day, uh, God is telling us that we've got to reach these folk and we're going to have to make some cultural changes, staff changes, and focus changes in order to do it. There are some people who aren't, aren't going to put up with that. But if you have a core that is committed and says, we're sticking with this, we think this is God's call on us. Uh, one, and I've, we have some churches who've done it, but I will tell you, it is a long process. And it's a process you need to bathe in prayer and you need to start uh, studying some good books and bringing in some great speakers. And don't simply say, let's hire a black guy, you know, or let's hire a Latino and then put all the pressure on that person. Because if you're going to be cross-cultural, it's not a one person staff mission. It's an entire church mission. And once you adopt that vision and mission, it's the job of the pastor to police that vision and to always focus on it. But it is extremely difficult and you must, this is the word you're going to need, patience is what you're going to need. It takes time. I like your line when you say, we have some churches that have done it. So those are the models. Those are the ones that... Uh, those who want to do it should go to and learn from them, right? I mean, not not just yeah. read books or what. I mean, actually go there, uh, maybe become a part of it and and learn how they did what they did. 
I, I, I would agree. <laughs> all right, one last question. What excites you about all this? What, what excites you across cultural churches and, and the ministry you're part of? Well, man, have you ever heard the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sing? They're amazing. Well, that's the kind of worship that excites me. And that's what I get to enjoy being in a cross-cultural church. I mean, here I am. I'm, we're sitting here in the year 2019. And as believers in Christ, we have this incredible heritage of the faith. It goes all the way back, you know, to the Old Testament and the early church fathers and all of the Reformation and all of the great theologians. But sadly, so many of our people, white or black, are disconnected from heritage, yet from another ethnicity. When you bring the richness of the African-American church and the worship forms that have been developed, and, and the black church exists because of the historic racism of America, they were forced to create their own churches. But in that forcing, they developed music and they develop worship styles and preaching styles that are such a blessing. And so, you know, as a Presbyterian reform guy, my, the white heritage I come from is almost scientific in the way they preach sermons. But the African-American brothers I've worked under, it's almost like art. And to combine the both of them is so powerful. So I will just tell you, I, I am blessed all the time by the kind of worship that is created here. And I am blessed by the kind of unity and solidarity. Hardly any of our cross-culturals ever have a problem with schism. But boy, you can see that plenty in an all-white church and an all-black church. These kind of churches... They know the price. And by the way, everybody pays a price to be part of this kind of a church. Everybody gives up something. But at the same time, everybody gains something. So uh, I'm excited by the joy of it. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm not, I just, I, I, I want to be careful to say this. These churches do not exist without evangelism. They, we have to share the gospel with the unsaved and call them to come to faith in Christ. It's not going to a white church and a black church and say, well, let's just get together and sing songs together. We're talking about planting churches that would reach the lost and bring them into a Christianity of reconciliation and mercy and unity for which there are far too few models in our country. So that's what gets me excited. Our guest on today's conversation has been Randy Neighbors, coordinator of Urban and Mercy Ministries for Missions in North America. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Randy. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net. <laughs>